something that mirrored the particular qualities of men having on average different bodies to women, um, but specifically the quality of being able to do violence and cause pain. That was Naomi Alderman from an interview coming up later in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Eleanor Rushton. Nobody can have missed the unfurling discussion of sexual harassment in film, theatre, TV and beyond. These abuses of power in the highest offices of entertainment and politics highlight profound imbalance. And how to redress it? Who do we empower in order to create a fairer world? This month, we're discussing questions relating to the balance of power in fiction and its creation, including some potentially troubling content. We'd like to warn anyone who is particularly sensitive to discussion of abuse or harassment of any kind. We recommend caution before listening to this episode. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. And Eleanor Rushton. Hello. I'm still trying to figure out whether an episode on power and its um, other baby themes is a very good timed episode, given the news um, that which is just blasting us over the past couple of weeks, or incredibly bad timing, because it feels like we can't get away from power and it being used wrongly. Abuses of power um, going back decades, known abuses of power that have been let um, to go on for... Well, let to go on, full stop. Um, and people wielding power that they've gained through other means so whether that's fame or money or politics or whatever um using that uh, to damage other people i think it's quite cathartic and i would for me anyway i, I hope it's well timed because when it's being as you say blasted at you I find it quite useful to be able to actually take time to examine and, and actually think about those iterations and how how they're treated and and the fact that they're not just a news story that we're that you know we've seen this kind of thing before maybe not in quite this sort of like concentrated um, way but and so often these things just get swept away again and there's been a lot of talk about maybe this is the thing that will make a difference maybe there will be a sea change who knows. I think it's quite nice to be able to pin to pin down and say, no, this is happening. This is a really serious thing. And this is something that whether we decide to face up to it or not, art examines. Because so many of these um, allegations are aimed at people who are either actors or comedians or work in Hollywood in the fiction world, which is obviously what we deal with rather than news just bringing it back to stories um i was listening to the guilty feminist podcast the other day which i love and they were talking about um whether these abuses of power have come because of um unrealistic depictions of women um in fiction throughout history i guess um and what we can do to change that and whether it, we're going to be living with this um inequality of power for a while until we get our 
depictions of, of women and depictions of power correct? It's also a bigger question, I think, because the your well, I think a, a big part of the fact that it's people in entertainment is that those are people you feel you know and love, and so it feels like more of a betrayal. But also in terms of media and, and the depiction of people, I, I think it's it's deeper seated than that. Even I think you know that's the sim- that's the the uh, the symptom, and the cause is essentially the disparity between how between how men and women are depicted in media, but also far far back beyond that, the roles of men and women in society. And I think what's nice about all this, I suppose, is that we are at a point where people are more likely to react with horror and to go, well, not necessarily, well, not enough, certainly. But in the case of Weinstein, it's sort of in many ways amazing that nobody just went, well, you know, these things happen, that's the industry, which would have happened, well, and did happen, we now know, uh, 20 years ago. But there is also seeping out of the cracks of all these news stories and these allegations by people who finally come forward or finally felt they could come forward there are still so many voices going either these people are lying or sometimes well what did they expect why did they Mm. go in there kind of kind of why didn't they come forward before why didn't they um speak out why did they carry on working on that film which so kind of massively still misunderstand the kind of shame of having felt like you complied in any way that I think we've got still a, an unpleasantly long way to go is a cliche obviously but like it, it is that it's such a journey that until we can every single time someone comes forward with this kind of thing treat it as a right, how can we help? What can we do? Rather than, mm, but how did it happen? Why did, mm, and reframing it. And we're not done. I think a real change has to happen with regards to how uh, victims of sexual assault and abuse are treated because um, so much of that incorrect use of power, that ongoing abuse of power treated by the, these, used by these men goes on into how that, person how that survivor lives the rest of their life whether they're what they're doing with that information whether they're telling anybody and how they're perceived by the rest of the world should they choose to come forward Um, and I think until criminals who do this to people rightly understand that they don't have any power and that once this sort of crime is committed that they are utterly powerless and really we need to take that power away from them A discussion about power in fiction must take a broad view, from microscopic exchanges of power between characters to the godlike abilities of superpowered heroes. Mike Carey is a writer across many media, best known for his comic book work in Vertigo's Lucifer and many of Marvel's X-Men titles, as well as his novel The Girl with All the Gifts, which he recently adapted into a feature film. Tom Crowley called Mike to talk about the many different shapes and uses of power. I'm Mike Carey. I'm also uh, M.R. Carey. I write under both names. Um, For many years, I mainly wrote comics, and then I moved into prose fiction. More recently, I've been doing some screenwriting. I tried my hand at games and radio plays and uh, didn't make much headway there. Um, So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a writer who uh, is is sort of like uh, comfortable with various media and uh, has sort of tried to keep a presence in, in a lot of different places. In, in the world of, um, of uh, fantasy or speculative fiction, uh, especially superheroes, there's often a, 
uh, a question of how empowered is your character and what how what challenges can they face. Uh, and I wondered if you had any particular approach for uh, taking, say, an X-Men team and pitting them against an adequately severe threat or enemy. Um, it tended to be sort of mix and match. I mean, one of the beauties of writing an X-Men team book, especially if you're not writing the sort of the big marquee book, uh, if you're writing one of the other the other books in the line, is that you get to choose from an incredibly wide cast. Uh, there are thousands of characters in that universe. Um, I took over um, Adjectiveless X-Men in the wake of House of M, when there had just been a massive cull of mutants because of uh, something that uh, the Scarlet Witch did. Um, but even so, I had um, almost complete free choice. Uh, Ed Brubaker, who was writing Uncanny X-Men, chose first, and then I got to choose from all of the characters who were not going to be in uh, his front lineup. My approach to it was to choose characters, well, first and foremost, characters who I thought I could voice um, convincingly, characters who I felt I had a connection to. But also I deliberately chose characters who had um, a sort of tangled and painful history with each other, because part of what I was uh, trying to do was to create a team that was so riven with internal tensions itself that even when it wasn't facing an external threat, it was already starting to tear itself apart. Um, with a view to actually tearing it apart a year or two years down the line, which I eventually did in Blinded by the Light. Uh, so in, in a way, um, the, the sort of um, the, the, the rivalries and, and the mistrusts and the, uh, the, the sort of various uh, agendas that are clashing against each other um, act as limitations to the, to the powers. What's the back and forth like on that when you, when you decide big character changes? How much... Carte blanche are you given to destroy those relationships, kill characters, destroy the team, lead, have big emotional changes in them? Well, it, it, inevitably there is there is a um, an element of negotiation in those things because you're writing one book in a line, and it's at any given time there are like um, uh, six or so monthly titles, a couple of mini series, um, you know, some, some freestanding books going on. So the characters are in use by other creative teams. What tends to happen at Marvel, I can't speak for the DC Universe because I've never written in it, um, what tends to happen at Marvel is that if you are writing a book with either with a solo protagonist or with a team, um, then you are, res you are primarily responsible for that protagonist and that T or that team, and you make the decisions about their fate, anything kind of um, game-changing for those characters, you have the sort of sign-off on. Whereas if you're borrowing characters who are in other books uh, and who primarily belong to other writers, then you need their permission before you shake everything up for them. Um, so, so during my run on X-Men, um, I kind of changed Rogue's status quo in a very big way. I, I had Professor, Professor X finally make good on his promise um, to cure her, um, uh, to give her total control over her powers, um, which, which was like a, a, a very, very big and far-reaching change. And I was able to do that because she was, she was my protagonist in, in a lot of those stories. But, but um, the, the other thing that Marvel would do, which I thought was a great, uh, a great idea, was um, twice a year they would take all of the writers and all the editors and stick them in a room they would have, they have what they call the creative retreats, either in New York or at Marvel West in L.A., off the back of San Diego. And we'd just like, uh, we'd thrash out the big, the big furniture for the year. We'd decide, you know, what's the next, if there's going to be a crossover, what are we working towards, what's going to happen in it, and how is our book going to feed that? And then we'd all go away and, and do our own thing. Do you mind if we talk about Girl With All The Gifts a little bit? 
Certainly, yeah. Yeah, so, so what happened was I was invited to submit a story for a themed anthology. Um, Charlene Harris and Tony Kellner did these anthologies annually, and the theme was always something innocuous and everyday. And the brief was then to write a supernatural story or a dark fantasy story, a horror story um, that used that theme. Um, one year it was family holidays, another year it was DIY. Um, and the year that I said I would submit a story, it was school days. And I sat for a long time trying to think of a, a decent story that, that hinged on school as a setting or an education as a theme. And then one day I just woke up with the idea of Melanie, the idea of this little girl sitting in a classroom writing an essay about what I want to be when I grow up. But um, we can see, she can't see herself, but we can see that she's a zombie. And therefore, um, you know, she's one of the undead. Growing up is probably not an option for her. Um, that, that, was the, that was the germ, I guess, the seed from which the story grew. Initially, Melanie is very much at the mercy of the adults around her. You know, when we first meet her in the institution, in the army base, um, she is completely contained, completely helpless. But once they go on the road, um, she becomes more and more the key to their survival. And she takes that responsibility and she takes that power. And ultimately, she, she sort of does something pretty dramatic and, and world shaking with it. One of, one of the inspirations for the story was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, where you have a monster who is an innocent um, and basically his monstrousness is is like conditional and contingent he doesn't become a monster until he is treated as one by his creator he is abandoned and neglected and that 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 neglect sort of plays through then uh, and he becomes victor frankenstein's nemesis um because of the way he is treated by his maker by his father um, so, the, the, so there were there were themes about intergenerational conflict. There were themes about you know, about di dialogues of power and powerlessness, about the relationships between the haves and haves not have nots in society. I wasn't specifically trying to reference either um, gender relations or um, racial equality, but I think it's kind of like it's 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 quite a it's quite a broad open metaphor. And certainly, as you say, with the casting in the movie those themes become directly relevant. And also with the iconography of the movie, you know, we made the decision early on to shape, to have the kids shave their heads, um, to have them dressed in uh, orange Guantanamo Bay style jumpsuits. So you're getting all of that, all of that stuff um, kind of uh, visible on the screen. And then and they definitely influence the way in which you see the, uh, the themes of the story. Uh, talking about the the adaptation then from book to to screen, um, and again tenuously clinging to the subject of power. Uh, so, how much authority did you have over the final nature of the screenplay, or how much was that a collaborative process? Well, I, I wrote the screenplay, um, and it was, it, was an, it was an intensely collaborative process. There were there were three of us sitting in a room for a long time. Um, the three being me, uh, the lead producer Camille Catan, and director Colin McCarthy. Um, Colin was on board before there was a screenplay. So we did all the, all the plotting and planning together. I was writing the novel at the same time. Um, so I came in with a kind of, a kind of um, idea of how the structure of the story would play out. And then we, we, we talked through between the three of us how, how, we, how that would work, which aspects of it would work in a movie, and which aspects of it would need to be reimagined for the movie. So for example, the novel has five point of view characters. It starts with Melanie, but all of the adult characters become um, point of view characters as well. Um, the movie, by contrast, sticks with Melanie throughout, and we only see what she sees 
we experience the world entirely through our eyes. And that's because it seemed to be that the best way to make use of the, um, the kind of directness of, uh, of a movie versus, versus a novel. A novel gives you the interiority of the characters in a, in a, in a different way, I guess. Something I'd love to talk about in the scope of, uh, as you say, superheroes, but also um, uh, empowered characters in general. Um, there are a lot of different, I feel like a lot of people, based on what they read when they were younger and based on what superhero comics do for them, uh, they like to tell different kinds of stories about what power means. And I think that's sort of best summed up in the maybe the conflict between how Superman's usually handled, but also how the X-Men are normally handled. Where with the X-Men, the powers are kind of a burden and uh, lead to more trouble than good, whereas Superman's this sort of godlike uh, protector figure uh, only occasionally prone to moments of you know being tortured and i sort of wondered what, what what did you come into the comics writing business thinking about superpowers and superheroes what do they stand for to you whoa that's a big question um i've always loved i've always loved the genre um i've always felt that um it's a genre that works best in comics i mean that's maybe more controversial now than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago because the movies uh, are doing such great uh, such great business but superheroes were kind of invented for comics and they're a great fit for comics um and there is there is this vast universe that has been created over 60 or 70 years um which actually the movies can barely touch i mean the marvel cinematic universe feels quite big now but if you if you compare it to the uh, the universe of the comics it's 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 a it's a drop in the ocean, and the ocean is very deep and and uh, very rich, and I, I just I just wanted to, I guess as a, as a kid, um, those were the the wish fulfillment fantasies that 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 I uh, that that I'd sort of indulged in uh, and invested in. Um, they turned into something else, obviously, over over the, uh, the 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 decades that I was sort of growing up and growing older. Um, but the idea of, of adding chapters to those stories was incredibly enticing. Um, Ros Cavani um, has said, uh, and I, forget, I think it was in her book on Buffy, uh, she, she talked about superhero narratives as the, the single biggest mythological text the human race has ever created. Um, and I think there's something in that. There is, there is a sense in which these are, these are kind of, they're not, they're not godlike figures, but they are... Um, they're like the demigods and heroes of old myths, or like the um, the supernatural um, protagonists of folklore. They're they're they're, they're larger than life, uh, and yet they they enact human stories, and and they their their um, their destinies chime in with uh, the, the 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 things that determine our lives too. So you feel like you're reading um, you're reading parables about about uh, about yourself you know about about about, uh, about real life if it's done right i think if you haven't read or watched the girl with all the gifts we strongly recommend it if you have check out the sequel novel the boy on the bridge i think it would be remiss of us not to include a bit of a chat about powers in an episode on power so the one that i've been thinking of while we've been recording this is um specifically time travel because it's the only one in my memory that comes with its own code of conduct. You have to be cautious about how you use that power specifically. It's a well-recognised and well-known fact that you can't mess with history if you're time travelling. You shouldn't. It's a power that's too great. You could do it. We're going to dangle that power there. But you absolutely should not because you don't have enough of power, uh, enough of our power, to um, 
realise its full impact. It's also, it's the question of stakes again as well. Something that always frustrates me in a film is when, if something happens that seems outlandish in an outlandish setting, and you've not been told whether that's a particularly big deal or not, and they react as though it's a big deal, but you go, but wait a second, is it? And and what are the rules here? How do we... Well, I'm trying to think of one that's specific, but... Well, so for example, uh, this is a very niche example, but somebody uh, once told me they went to see the film Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. And Classic. There was a point where, so it's uh, it's a confused film from all angles, as far as I can tell from the accounts I've heard of it. So in the film, Van Helsing comes up against his greatest foe yet, a very tall wall. And then, in a sort of strange flashback, remembers that he has the power to jump over very tall walls and then does. And you think, well, firstly, you never established that this is a superhero who didn't have that power. Then you put them up against it, not having established that, and then said, wait a second, I can do this thing that I need to do now. And then they did. I've got to say Thor Ragnarok as well is another example of that because that presents you constantly with very short-term challenges where you are presented with a situation where they say, well, we have to do this thing. And then somebody will say, I can do that. And everyone else says, well, that's good. Do that then. And they'll turn the key or open the door or punch the thing. And then they'll move forward in the story. And you go, well, hang on. I don't know which of these is the great challenge that you're meant to have overcome. And I'm also not totally sure what any of you can do. What, what are your obstacles here? What's the nature of your characters and your journey and what you really want and what your failings really are? And that's the issue. So things like powers, things like time travel, they say you have to establish in something like Back to the Future, the stakes are you'll disappear. If you don't right the wrong that you've done, your whole family will disappear because your mum never met your dad. Uh, and things like Terminator, if John Connor is killed, then the humans will never survive because he won't be there to lead the resistance. And that clear establishment of powers and limitations is sort of crucial to any scale of telling a story. It could be someone's fortitude, even their will. It doesn't have to be a, a superpower, but it's it's kind of the basis of, of most dynamics of storytelling. It's just magnified in science fiction when someone has a laser. We're now very proud to present an original story, etc. recording of a monologue written by Lizzie Milton. It's an exploration of one particular kind of empowerment and restriction called Clap Along If You Feel. I am a good guy. I have a good life. I'm not exceptional, but I'm decent. I have a job and a fiancé and a house. I am successful within reasonable limitations. I am happy. I live in a nice area. You know the kind of place I mean, the kind of place people rarely get stabbed in. The kind of place where cars are set on fire maybe once or twice a year at most. The kind of place where people don't cry in public. The kind of place where all the fences are high, and when you hear someone scream, you lock the doors and turn the television on loud. But it's okay, because people rarely get stabbed in a nice area like this. I have a nice fiancé. She wears tasteful clothes and keeps her figure in shape. She smiles often, and 
when she cries at night, she does so quietly so as not to wake me up. The only evidence she's been crying at all are the tear stains on her pillow. Sure, we argue about it. You shouldn't cry so much, Linda. Be happy. I can't make myself happy, John. Well, not with that attitude, Linda. But marriage is all about compromise, right? Nobody's perfect. And she smiles an awful lot, with her skin stretched back over her skull and her teeth shining brightly, dripping with... Is that blood? Or lipstick? She's a real beauty, Marjorie. A real, real beauty. And I know the question you want to ask, the question everyone asks us. When are you going to have kids, Mark? <laughs> soon, Mike. Real, real soon. We want kids. Of course we want kids. We want kids as much as any other totally normal average person wants kids. We want all them kids. <laughs> well, not all of them kids, only ones that are biologically related to us, of course. The real question is not whether we want kids. We do. We want kids. The real question is how many? 2.5, of course. The problem is, how do you get that 0.5 of a child? You just cut it in half, Bob, I hear you say. Ah, but it's still one child. It just happens to have a major life-affecting disability that we willingly inflicted upon it. Now, I suggested we use science on this one. If we can find a way for Maxine to be eternally around five months pregnant, we've solved the problem. On the one hand, we have a baby. On the other, it cannot live outside of Maxine's body, so it can't really be considered a separate entity. Ergo, mathematically speaking, it is half a child. Lucy didn't like this at all. Sometimes I really question her maternal instinct. <laughs> Not really. We're happy. We love each other. I have friends, too. Because that's normal, right? To have friends. I have friends. Not the kind you talk about feelings to, because that's women's work, along with laundry, cooking, actual work, having babies, looking after babies, any and all emotional labour, and knowing where I've put my glasses, all women's work. I have friends that you drink with and talk about football with. Oh, how I love the football! Men kicking... A ball from one part of a field to another. It is so exciting. I love football. Except Man United, who are fascists. <laughs> My friends like to rib each other. We call it banter. It is very funny. I find it very funny when they say mean and hurtful things about me with little wit or context. <laughs> one day, Mike said... Oh, Andrew, you are so fat. You are so fat, you look like a woman. A very fat woman. And I laughed so hard. Tears came out of my eyes. But I wasn't crying because I was happy. I was happy because Mike was so funny. It was such 
banter. Mike is very banter. So as you can see, I'm very happy. I'm so normal and happy. I could bring my hands to my face in an expression of joy like this. I dig in my fingernails because I'm so happy. I'm so happy I could rip my face off. I am so happy I could rid my face of any features whatsoever. I'm good. Clap Along If You Feel was written by Lizzie Milton and performed by Richard Rycroft. It was directed by Tom Crowley and recorded by Andy Goddard at the Coach House Studio. Something that always occurs to me about power in the arts is that almost of taste and judgment. Because deep down at the very core of me, I would say that my fundamental belief is that all art has value and will never mean the same thing to anyone twice that no two people get the same thing from a piece of art. However, I certainly knows what I likes and am frequently in a position where I have to judge whether or not I deem something to be uh, good or right for a certain project, someone's talents, someone's performance, somebody's writing. And it's I try my very best to take all that's good from a piece of writing or from uh, an actor, from anybody creative, with rather than just write them off completely even if something is completely against my own tastes and it's something which i find very interesting because it, it, here we are right now we're organizing a podcast which is an anthology where we are expected to pick writing we're expected to pick actors and uh one, once upon a time long long ago we deemed odin ornhill marson mm-hmm. to be an excellent composer who we thought was brilliant and suitable for this podcast but so often, even in our sort of smallest ways in social interactions and in terms of where we put our money, we are curators and arbiters of taste and judgment. And that power is limited to people like us who are not multi-millionaire Hollywood movie producers. But it's still a responsibility in a way, especially if you're engaged in the industry. I completely agree. And I think it's also very interesting in terms of the idea of voting with your feet and kind of where you're putting what limited power you might have, whether it's your power to buy a ticket or to, you know, to choose to go and see something or not as well. So not only saying, you know, using your power as a viewer to kind of express your opinions or, you know, not to trash something, but also to decide actually this piece from what I've seen does not make enough effort to, to do, to be inclusive or does not make enough effort to um, frame this discussion in a thoughtful manner and I'm not going to put my money there. I think you can feel disenfranchised very easily when you're on a budget, you know, you're not making big moneyful decisions about who can go in this film or, you know, what gets made. But what you can do, even at the most, most basic level, is decide how you are going to show the people who do make those decisions what you think. And that is becoming part of the bottom line or not or refraining from being part of the bottom line so put your money into projects that are making efforts where you think effort should be made maybe don't put your money into something where they're not doing those things do you think too many um productions sort of caught the controversial line as a way of getting consumers to not ethically spend i'm not sure i feel like more and more the trend is to be 
actively, I mean, in this week that we're recording this, uh, Disney announced the Lion King cast, which is very exciting. It's brilliant that there's a film about Africa with a predominantly black cast. And what was phenomenal was the fact that it clearly, as it was, I would say, quite cynically intended, kicked up an enormous amount of discussion, either about how it was brilliant or about how, why are there three white people in this cast about the story set in Africa? And I just thought to myself, the first time I saw it, I thought, well, that makes sense. Good for them. And then thought, I have literally no interest in this project because it's a remake of an already good film by a company that's already enormously wealthy and probably aren't that nice. I mean, you know, I don't want to go on the record as saying Disney are terrible people. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but it's an enormous multi-billion dollar industry run by people who are probably not that concerned about what's ethical and what's um, good for society, but are thinking what will get people on side. And I feel like it's kind of a case of a post-Hamilton, well, we're going to court that audience, the audience who has switched on, they're progressive, and they spend money on entertainment because they have access to it, because they have a bit of money. And it's it's strange because I'm at the same time disgusted, uh, but also pleased for the general air of progress (laughs) that it marks. You know what's really phenomenal about the Lion King casting? What is it? Is that you? nobody beats James Earl Jones like he's been cast as the same part twice because nobody else could be Mufasa. Think mm. of that as power. That's true. I sort of, you know, being an enormous snob, I suppose I sort of think to myself, well, if you want to be a responsible person, you go a bit more off the beaten path and you find the stuff that you think is genuinely exciting and new. But then also what you hope is that rather than it being... Uh, board of executives, all of whom are middle-aged white men, giving permission to um, a white woman, a gay man, a, a black woman, a black man, whoever, the chance to have the funding to make their own film, tell their own story or write it or, or anything, act in it, all of the above. You hope that there will be more diverse voices in control of the money at some point. And I think we're at the tipping point where that, that seems eminently possible uh, sooner rather than later. And that would be the, in terms of mainstream culture, that would be the the hope for what would happen. But then again, I often see sort of conversations about whether it's really good that whether Ghostbusters, the recent film, is is good or not, and whether it's wrong to say that it's bad or good or, or what have you. And I just think, I mean, it's a remake of Ghostbusters. There's so much better uh, better art produced by all female teams every day in the world. If you really care. Go find something you can champion as being the best thing you've ever seen because it'll be there. But then again, there's so much male shit made. Why does the, the female produced thing or the female made thing have to be the best thing ever? Why can't we have female shit too? You can have female shit. I just don't want to see it. I want to see really good stuff. And I, I do frequently. <laughs> I think it has to be both. I think for the, the sort of picture of what a more equalised state would be would be that other groups other than middle-aged white men are able to make big blockbusters and have all that money behind them and also a lot of the sort of more independent fringier stuff is also telling those stories but I think it has to be both and I think even if one's taste leans one way or the other that's okay both is good If you want the power to curate the sort of work you want to see, why not try running your own venue? Katie Danbury is the producer of the London Horror Festival and recently became the theatre manager of the Old Red Line in Islington. Jenny Redmond sat down with Katie to talk about curating a season of terror and about the role of women in horror and theatre in general. So my name is Katie Danbury uh, and I am the theatre manager of the Old Red Line Theatre. 
Um, I was formerly the assistant manager at the Etc. Theatre, um, and I've worked as a theatre producer and an actor and various other roles in the industry. I've been archiving bit of this, bit of that, bit of a Dell boy in the theatre world. <laughs> Jack of all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you curated the uh, and put on the, the horror festival last month. And I missed out my massive job, <laughs> which is curating and producing the London Horror Festival. You're absolutely right. Um, so yes, um, I've just finished that. Well, I say I've finished that. It's it's an all year round thing. Um, but the the uh, the London Horror Festival finished on the fourth of November this year. So I do um, an open call as of April, um, and um, anyone can submit as long as it's um, a live performance medium. We, we uh, ask for all sorts of things: theatre, um, magicians, um, live seances. We've had that. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Um, <laughs> Successful? Um, no. Well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's a weird answer. Um, We'll have to find out <laughs> next time. Um, yeah, so it's it's all do- sorts of different genres within the genre, um, and all sorts of different uh, live performances that we look for. And um, basically, I have the submission open until the end of July, and um, I basically kind of go through all the different uh, applications. The first thing I look at is how interesting their pitch is. Is it a new way of tapping the genre? Um, who's involved? The, the theatre company's background, the artist's background, what they've done before, have they tackled the genre before? Um, what sort of reviews they've had? Do they get bums on seats? Um, yeah, just real refreshing ways. I, it's really important for me to kind of engage with more uh, female artists as well. Um, that was something I really tackled in last year's programme. Um, uh, which was following the theme from the playwright competition, which was Badass Women. Um, and I was really proud last year that the programme was very 50-50 in the split between male and female artists. Um, so that's something I always strive for in programming as well. Um, Normally, is it underrepresented, or is, is horror a specifically difficult genre for women writers? It's it's definitely on the up. Um, so in terms of the, the UK indie horror industry at the moment, um, there's loads of really upcoming, um, fantastic um, horror directors and writers, uh, including uh, Prano Bailey Blonde, um, Kate Shenton, Katie Bonham, Abigail Blackmore, who are creating some fantastic work for the genre in film at the moment. Really groundbreaking work. Um, and that's something I really want to push more onto the stage. I want more more women engaging with the genre because um, a lot of people do associate with misogyny. Um, uh, something that never really occurred to me growing up. I always just loved the genre and never felt it to be anti-women. But it's definitely a label that we want to address, <clears throat> which is why I set up the the badass women playwriting competition last year. Um, which it, it had a fairly good response, but I was still fairly disappointed with how many female playwrights came on board to engage with it, um, despite the theme. And even with the theme of it has to be a leading woman, she has to be strong, she has to be mm. independent. Writers were still really struggling to address that, even though that was the brief. I even had some submissions where the leads were men. There wasn't even a woman in it. And then they actually put in a stage direction, could change this to a woman. And it's like, what? <laughs> Is Badass Women something you want to do again next year? Um, 
I think it's definitely something we should try again, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely more of an obvious effort, I think, in both the film and the theatre industry of trying to create um, more roles for women. More really, because as as a work, as an actor as well, I just always despair at the castings. <laughs> just so then, it, when you refer to her as the girlfriend, and that's it, and then there's no there's no description. Okay, what's my character? Oh, she's just the girlfriend. It's like. There's definitely more of an effort, I think, at the moment of people trying to address that. Um, but it is a very slow process. We're going in the right direction. It's just very slow. I actually met with a, a really great company yesterday who are bringing some Sunday Monday shows to us um, uh, called Blink Theatre. And they're doing a show called Response to Power here in a few weeks' time. And I was amazed when they presented, I mean, I didn't program their show, so that's why I had the meeting with them, and, and they presented their lineup. And it's six writers, six short plays, and five of them are written by women. And I was, it, it's ridiculous that I was amazed by this. I was like, oh, how did you do this? How did you do this? I've run playwriting competitions for three years in a row, and I get so few women submitting. How have you done this? And um, they, I think the way they were describing it, it was, it was just, they felt that women would be listened to, their work would be read by submitting to them. Because uh, one of them, she, she teaches acting and directing, and, and I think a lot of her students have come out of that and submitted. So they know that this is a company where they can submit work and that they will be taken seriously. What can the industry be doing better? Um, I think definitely making effort to um, encourage female playwrights to submit their work. I mean, that's definitely, it's definitely something I'm going to make a conscious effort to do when I relaunch the literary department here next year. Um, in fact, um, I might even do some windows where it's just female playwrights. Um, I was going to say, sort of female only, almost female only, like shortlists. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think it's really important to do that. <clears throat> and for people to know that it's uh, a safe venue for them to submit to and that their work will be acknowledged appropriately. You mentioned all the revelations that have come out in the industry and in Hollywood mm. at the moment, um, and actors yeah. seem to be powerless in terms of what they need to do to get a career, um, how they are portrayed, what can we be doing differently to make sure that they're empowered in their own lives? Um, I think the responsibility that lies with various different bodies, most importantly with the producers and the directors, knowing their behaviour is unacceptable. And um, also with the, the casting directories, quite a few of them, I find this, I found this a lot as an actor, and they say, oh, you know, we vet the entries, we vet these companies, but then you get the same old con men and the same old people and the perverts, to be frank, who keep sneaking back in, coming up with new company names and, and managing to post these these um, these castings, and some of them are so blatantly disgusting, like, you, you must be nude but for no reason, or, oh, come to an audition at this place and uh, be prepared to take all your clothes off. These castings are still allowed to be on certain sites. They are, and then they'll go, oh, oh, sorry, well, we'll take it down after so many people have complained about it. Um, yeah, what's happening at the moment with the casting directories isn't good enough. It really isn't. They're, they're allowing these people to behave like this, and they're allowing um, people who are new to the industry, new actors who are really keen to get their foot on the ladder, to be uh, put in these really vulnerable, potentially very dangerous situations. So absolutely something needs to be done there. Some, they, they need to be better controlled.
Um, would you say that it's the responsibility of theatre companies, bigger organisations, to make a stand and say, not not in this industry anymore, it's not going to happen? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, like I said before, uh, it, it lies with the people who are perpetrating this behaviour. But I think the next level of power lies with these organisations to say we won't tolerate it. And I don't care who you are, I don't care what sort of work you've produced. And, and Dan Rebelato wrote a really good article about this uh, recently, addressing that. You know, people who were involved in the Royal Court at the time and experienced that behaviour, who could have had this incredible theatre career ahead of them, when, I don't know no way I'm not working with this guy or oh, this is the way the industry is I don't want to be involved and how many great writers and how many great actors have we lost as a result of that you know it has this this huge effect um, and we get to a point where we're surprised at how few female writers there are that are submitting work yeah yeah it pretty much boils down to it yeah absolutely again it's this vulnerability of putting yourself out there and there's people like that running the industry you just think why bother so i'm going to start programming as of sort of march april onwards so that's um that's my big plan for this week look out companies here i come for you um so yeah so that'll be kind of the main show runs um i'll be programming from then onwards and yes i am going to be very focused on bringing female voices center stage I think while one of sort of storytelling's duties is to examine power dynamics and the, and the abuses of them, one of the sort of joys it has is in thinking about ways people navigate being in the sort of oppressed um, role. And I think that can be an incredibly powerful subject generally I mean think of all the films and stories and plays and things that are about the underdog kind of winning but I think as the world moves on and we sort of start to very gradually extend our sympathies and think about that different kinds of people can be heroines or heroes and that kind of thing we also start to extend the means by which we understand what bucking an oppressive power can be it doesn't always have to be like a superhero who saves the world although it definitely can be but it can be something else it can be someone who defies a trend or who manages to succeed at something they've been trying to do I think art has enormous capacity to examine kind of empowerment and heroism in many 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 forms and to sort of more importantly present it as that it's not just oh this person's done a good thing it's this person's done this and it is powerful because look at how they managed to do it another thing I was going to mention was um Hidden Figures as well which is one that I watched relatively recently that's fantastic and the, I mean it's fantastic and it, I don't think it quite fits into what I was saying in terms of like showing a small contribution that can be seen as powerful because obviously what um, those women were doing was massive and incredible. But again, it's a story that is to do with people sitting down and working things out and people leading everyday lives. It's not got magic in, it's not got a war in it per se, but it is something that is so about empowerment and 
heroism. And it's, I love being shown, and I think one can be shown again and again and again, different ways of looking at that and different ways of understanding it. What I really loved about Hidden Figures was the way in which it showed us the tiny, like, power tricks almost that were played on these people not having a bathroom nearby, things that they had to go through, which you might say in, in the great scheme of things are mundane or small or whatever, but everything that can can knock a person and wear them down um, and that kind of stuff and how much power comes from dignity and bravery and intelligence. And that's something that I kind of want to keep thinking about. Another thing I love about Hidden Figures is that it gives you that... Welcome to the Hidden Figures podcast. It's the Hidden Figures podcast. <laughs> if anyone's listening, I would do that. Uh, <laughs> I'm in. But uh, one thing I loved about it was it gave you that um, the kind of alpha male American dream of space conquest and um, engineering and uh, a sort of a, a progress of technology and engineering that seemed to be a typically white American male dream. And it expanded it out, not just by showing these women's dedication to that ideal, the ideal of good engineering, good maths, but also by revealing that they were always part of it. That's the thing that really got me was it was going, look at this sort of uh, bold trumpets and American flags blowing in the wind in John Glenn. These uh, African-American women were always part of that, that journey. And that's what, in terms of power, I thought was particularly affecting was the idea that these people had a, a crucial power in that mission, whether they were given the dignity of being credited for it at the time. It's interesting because it does seem we've come back to the idea that it's about, that storytelling is about amplification of those stories. It's something we discussed when we were talking about the allegations of sexual abuse, that we're thinking about amplifying the stories of the people who've um, experienced it. It's what we talked about when we talked about people in positions of power within the industry of storytelling and their responsibility to amplify voice and to explore and expose previously maybe underrepresented um, people. And then again here, which is this idea of any, I think almost any story that seeks to really make you engage with the, the main character that is about empowerment again it's about seeing how their desire to impact the world is amplified through their actions and how the storyteller manages to kind of expand on those until they actually do achieve something we now present an extract of a longer piece It deals with an abusive student-teacher relationship, so once again, we do urge caution before listening. This is an extract from a work in progress by Naomi Ishiguru, entitled Plants That Grow in the Dark. I started sleeping with Mr Lane sometime pretty soon after my 17th birthday. I say sleeping with, but that's stupid really, considering I always, without fail, slept in my dorm room on the third floor of the building. We never slept together at all. What we did in his office was have sex. Or fuck. That's probably the best word for it. No affection implied. 
School had just started back after spring break. The wildflowers were out and we were in summer uniform. He handed me a birthday present. A little velvet box, red, like my hair, he said. It wasn't the same red, but I didn't tell him that. It was a pendant, very simple, very classy, just a heart on a chain. I let him fasten it round my neck. Thank you, I told him. He invited me for a drink in his office. Don't get me wrong, it was what I wanted at the time. I'd had my eye on him for a while. I mean, my God, he was absolutely my type. Broad shoulders, ice blue eyes, totally into romantic poetry. And a few years older than me, don't forget. I'd never been into boys my age. They so often seem so very unformed and pathetic. Like plants that grow in the dark. Not that any of us get much opportunity to hang out with boys anyway, shut up here in the middle of nowhere. Pretty lucky then that I have a thing for older men, right? At least, that's what I thought. The first time we did it, we were on the couch in his swanky office with old books all around us and a fire in the grate because the spring evening was cold. He pulled me on top of him, and while we made out, he peeled off my clothes one by one until I was butt naked and he was still in his suit. Then he ran his hands all over my body, grabbing at my hair, my breasts and my thighs. But I'm sorry, Detective Humphreys, am I freaking you out telling you this? Is this inappropriate for a girl of 17? Well, it didn't turn out so great for any of us in the end. You can take comfort in that. Still, you should know that in those early days, he made me want him so bad, I could barely think of anything else. Sometimes, it would hit me like a wave in the middle of class, or sitting in the dining hall, or just wandering the corridors with the other girls. I would crave him so intensely that I was like, rendered physically incapable of continuing with what I was doing. I learnt to shut myself inside my mind, keep my face blank while I replayed our last encounter, relived it almost, clandestinely in public, surrounded on all sides by teachers and by girls who could have no idea of my secret, no idea what was happening in my brain right then, while they neatly wrote the date in their copybooks or dutifully ate whatever useless mush the canteen had served up that night. You see, Detective Humphreys, he made himself into an obsession for me, teasing me with just enough attention, just enough affection to keep me feeling unsure of where I stood and desperately wanting more. He never let me undress him. He seemed to like keeping all of his clothes on, at most, he would just undo his belt and his fly. At first, I hardly noticed this. I was just excited to have a grown man so obviously appreciative of my body. Not an inch of me went untouched. 
unexamined, untasted. But then I started to notice the imbalance. At first, I thought it might be because I'd been too timid, too much of a schoolgirl to actually get to removing any of his clothes myself. But when I tried just to undo the buttons on his shirt, he slapped my hand away and dismissed me from his office. I could hardly leave fast enough as far as he was concerned. After that, it was two weeks before he invited me again. Let me tell you, those were the longest two weeks of my life. I thought I was in love, you see. I thought my heart was breaking and I couldn't understand what I'd done. I didn't realise yet how much of a sick bastard he was. It was sometime around here I realised that he was fucking Cassie too. I heard them through the door. I'd gone to his office without being invited. I'll admit it. I was crazy for him and after a fix. He hadn't been asking for me so much in those weeks. I I figured he was still angry. I tried to open his shirt. So yeah, I heard them and waited in an empty classroom opposite until I heard his door open and shut and steps retreating down the hall. That's how I saw it was her. She'd always struck me as kind of weird before. We weren't very close at that point. And in that moment, I hated her. I swallowed it at first, but I'm not a girl who can keep down emotions easily. In the end, I confronted her in the second floor bathrooms and we had a stand-up fight. There's still tape over the mirror from where she smashed it. But after that fight, I guess I got to liking Cassie more. She'd always struck me before as being kind of bloodless, but I was learning otherwise. We started talking more, eating meals together. I suppose we were joined by our secret, or at least it started that way. Then I got to see what a cool girl she was. I mean, we had loads in common, way more than just Mr Lane. I guess that's why he'd picked us both. We both loved romantic poetry, for one thing. Probably that's part of what made us susceptible, if you're going to use that word. But way more than that, Cassie read all sorts I'd never tried before. Christina Rossetti, Virginia Woolf, Catherine Mansfield. And she was really kind to me when things got bad with Mr Lane. I guess I'd just stopped being all that into him knowing he was a cheating bastard. And besides, that that thing about not liking me undressing him had creeped me out a bit. I didn't like to think what lay behind it, and, and I hated what it did to our dynamic. I felt so powerless. One time, we were in his office just fooling around, you know, and I decided I wanted to leave. Well, he didn't let me. He said it was illogical. Illogical that I didn't want him inside me that particular afternoon because I'd always been so willing before. So obsessed and so available. And a lack of logic, more than anything, was something he could not abide.
I hated him so much that afternoon. I didn't fight. Just lay there, completely still and silent on the rug, pretending in my brain that I was somewhere else as he went over every tiny piece of me like he always did, as if I'd been responding, and not just lying there with tears running off my face. He'd done the same to Cassie. Found out not long after. She hadn't taken as long as I had to refuse him. She's more guarded than me. More naturally private, so it was inevitably going to happen. And he'd just gone ahead and done whatever to her anyway. She didn't tell me at first because she wasn't sure if it had been rape, because she hadn't fought and because it was true that she had wanted him before. But I wasn't so mixed up about it. I knew what it was, and hearing that he'd done it to her too galvanised me into doing something about it. I persuaded her that we should both confront him. I mean, he didn't even know we knew about each other. We'd, both of us together, call him rapist to his face, and see what he did was my thinking. Obviously, it was a terrible idea. He wasn't violent, really. But from that point on, we were way out of our depth, if we hadn't been before. He threatened us. Said he would sabotage our grades. Tell our teachers and our parents what we'd been up to with him. Said we should believe he'd do it because this school would never want a scandal. Never want something like this publicly destroying their reputation. His career would be fine. They'd just quietly ask him to leave. He'd been thinking of moving on anyway, he told us. The students here were so boring. It would very likely be much more stimulating for him somewhere new. And anyway, it would be worth it. Worth it to punish us for our inconsistency and for our lack of logic. For turning against him in this way. He also started making us come to his office together. That was the worst for me. Having to watch Cassie cry while he bent over her. Hating myself and not finding a way of getting us both out of there. That was about the time Cassie really started to go downhill. It was as if she'd retreated far back into her head. As if nothing in any of this All of this reality could reach her, and her memory got fucked up. It was like she wasn't logging half the stuff that happened to her anymore. She let things slide out of her brain as easily as they came there, making no impression. She'd been so bright before, so full of light. A little fragile, yes, but nothing that would stop her reading, talking, arguing passionately and lighting up with love for the things and the people around her. And now she was slipping off somewhere in her mind, where I I couldn't follow. I think that's what made me try and talk to Mrs McLaughlin. Stupid idea that that was. I just looked at Cassie one morning and decided no threat of Mr Lane's could be worse than this. 
But when I got there, well, you won't believe this. I was even surprised myself. I couldn't tell her. You'll think me an absolute coward, but still, I can't explain it. I just felt so terrifyingly, cripplingly ashamed. I cried for most of the interview, and I was in there nearly two hours. All she got out of me, I think, was that there was a man in the school who was making both my life and Cassie's completely miserable, pathetic, wasn't I? So it all carried on. Until this morning, that is. I didn't kill him, obviously. I mean, that'd be dumb. I'd hardly get to Oxford with a murder on my record now, would I? But I can't say I'm not glad someone did. I'm sure he had a hundred and one sordid little rackets going on in the school and that Cassie and I were just the half of it. Someone like that can make so many enemies. Where was Cassie last night? In her dorm room, I suppose. I, I don't know, she's in a different room from me. I didn't see her. She's always an early riser, though, so she's usually in bed by ten at the latest. Then this morning, I suppose she got up early and headed into the woods. I wouldn't blame her for wanting some air. Do I believe her capable of violence? Of course not. Cassie wouldn't hurt a fly, you can see that. She's so sweet and really she believes in the sanctity of all living creatures. Just look at her. I mean, how could you even ask me that? Because I'd said she'd smashed a mirror. A mirror is a very different thing to a person, it's just an object. Besides, she smashed it because she was furious at her own reflection. A danger to herself sometimes, maybe. But never, absolutely never to anyone else. I hope you find who did it, Detective Humphreys, because for one thing, I'd like to shake their hand. That should be my testimony. That should be what I say, sitting here. Facing her in this weird and empty classroom with a tape recorder running. And I wish to God I could. Don't get me wrong. I mean, for one thing, it would feel so good to see something having an effect on her stupid, expressionless face. Oh, I'd love to see her slip, even just for a second, into hating the dead man. Watch her understanding why no one here cares that he's gone. The whole flood of everything I want to tell her roars in torrents through my brain. But she only asks me questions that it's genuinely impossible to answer with anything more than a few words. It's like she's not interested in me at all. Like she doesn't really want to know about any of this. And then. It's like I'm sitting in Mrs. McLaughlin's room all over again. And I know, with absolute certainty, I won't tell her a thing. I just feel too embarrassed. So filled up with shame. 
This extract from Plants That Grow in the Dark was written by Naomi Ishiguro and performed by Mariam Grace. It was recorded and directed by Eleanor Rushton. In an episode about power, who better to speak to than the author of The Power, the game-changing novel which recently won the 2017 Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. I sat down with writer Naomi Alderman to speak about the power and its many-layered depiction of what power does to people. I'm Naomi Alderman. I am a writer. I write novels, for example, The Power. I also make video games, for example, Zombies Run. I'm currently working on the TV adaptation of The Power. The Power is a novel about what happens when all of a sudden almost all the women in the world develop the power to electrocute people at will. And everything then is quite different in all sorts of ways. And part of what the book is about is an interrogation of that idea that if women were in charge, the world would be kinder and nicer and more loving and more compassionate and perhaps even sexier than a world where men are in charge. And it's just a just a question about what it is that we're saying and thinking about women and about men when we say that. And also about what the nature of power is, whether you can wield power without being wielded by it in some way. The power being about kind of power structures and, as you said, kind of the ways people are affected by either being overpowered or by possessing power. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the process of from a writer's perspective, navigating that idea and, and doing that exploration. So kind of how you approach this quite large question. <laughs> it is quite a large question. So uh, when I started thinking about it, it was in the context of um, a, a relationship that I'd had for quite a long time had ended in a really abrupt and upsetting way. And I was in that sort of emotional place of feeling like one of the things that had happened was that the person that I was with, the man that I was with, had left me because I was too strong somehow, because I was too much. And so this made me think about gender dynamics and about how that influences relationships. When I started out, I thought, well, this is quite a small topic, gender. You know, I can I can, mm-hmm. I can, can do like a 170-page book about the breakup of a relationship or about a relationship somehow media, talking about the gender dynamics within it. And then... From those thoughts that I thought um, it would be interesting to do something a bit science fictional with, I wanted to do something that mirrored the particular qualities of men having on average different bodies to women, um, but specifically the quality of being able to do violence and cause pain. So... Obviously, on average, this is uncontroversial, men are taller than women, men have broader shoulders than women, men have more upper body strength than women, on average. Obviously, you can find any, quite easily, like a two people who where the woman is stronger than the man, that, you know, this is uncontroversial, we can just see it in the world. Um, and one of the things people say about, you know, what are the gender, why why are gender roles the way they are? One of the things people say is, oh, well, you know, well, like in the past, men men's... Uh, physical skills were just more economically valuable. So 
if a man is able to haul coal and chop down trees and uh, climb up onto the roof to do thatching more easily than a woman, then surely that means he's paid more, he is valued more, etc., etc. And so I wanted to take that aspect away. You know, I could have given women just big muscles. Also, in the book, that would have just been a bit too comic, I think. I wanted to get rid of that part and find something to give women that would mirror the ability to do violence without mirroring the, oh, and this is very, very useful. Um, so I thought about it quite a lot and I came up with essentially the thing that electric eels can do. I actually talked to a marine biologist about this in about 2012, just working out where you would put that in the human body. And so that was a really good starting point to go, okay, in theory, there are some uses to being able to electrify things, but they would be quite hard to use if that power started up tomorrow. I mean, you wouldn't probably have a woman standing in your house powering your lights we've already got ways to do all those things so economically it's not particularly useful all it can do is hurt people i just wanted to explore then how how that would change things my job was not to cover every possible story because that would involve telling the story of literally everybody on the planet Mm. my job was to tell a pick a few resonant stories and rely on the reader to go, oh, and I wonder how this would affect my life and how would my day be different today if I had this? The pleasing thing that I'm receiving back from readers is that readers are really doing that. And uh, I love it when I get messages from people saying, oh, but, you know, how do you think this would affect people in Afghanistan? I just, I don't know, but I would love you to tell me. Mm. You know, I would love to find out. It becomes Uh, collaborative then, doesn't it? It's sort of this idea of you've been created a world that then people can start to colour in I suppose it's like map making in the olden days like you'd give it to the captain and sort of like fill it in as they went along yeah or it's like you know role-playing games which I'm a fan of where you you sort of create a scenario and then you rely on the players to explore it for themselves um I'm really I'm really quite a committed postmodernist. I I believe in the gaps that Mm. you leave in things and that the gaps leaving well-shaped gaps is somehow as important as the stuff you put around the gaps. That idea that you leave space for the reader, the viewer, the the player to interpolate themselves into the text. And so I, cho- I chose four tales for this novel. There's Roxy, who is the daughter of a crime family. That seemed like that is the position in the world in which the ability to do physical violence most easily turns directly into cash. So that seemed important. There's Tunde, who is part of the media. So that's another different kind of power. There's Margot, who is a politician. Uh, there's there's Ali, who becomes the leader of a religious movement. And all of these are different sorts of power. So that's sort of schematic, but I hope they make sense as more than just schema. But it just, I wanted to suggest the variety of different things that this would touch. So you might, it would, it would it's obvious why Roxy's life would be different. Yeah. But is it? obvious why Ali could do what she could do in terms of founding a new religion? Is it obvious that it would actually make a difference to a politician? Well, if in reading the book you become convinced by any of the things, then we have explained something about the world. Yeah. You know, if we see the scenes with Margot growing in confidence because... Not because she actually hurts anybody, but because she knows she could. Yeah. If we believe that, 
then we have understood why there are more male MPs than female MPs. Yeah, in a, absolutely. You know, in a really... And, like, that's not the end. People say to me, oh, well, you know, does this book mean that violence is the only solution? I'm like, no. If I thought violence was the only solution, I wouldn't have written a novel. Yeah. I would have gone out with a hatchet. But I think recognising where it comes from is the critical thing, you know. Yeah. If we can look at all of these structures and instead of saying, oh, well, evolution psychology says that women are more like berries and men go hunting. Um, or, you know, we say, oh, well, you know, men do it more because they they don't have to spend time with their children. Instead of going, well, no, I think a lot of it is simply to do with the confidence and the power that comes from knowing that, if necessary, you would be in the class of people that can hit the other class really, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, once, if you walk yeah. through the world with that. Yes. Even just in the back of your head, like it, it must, it does. You see it makes a difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it clearly makes a difference. And the critical thing is now we don't have to respect it. If we, th- if we really know that that's true, then... We know that the reason the world is like this is not because of, you know, men's brains are different to women's brains or because, you know, women don't want it or any of those things. We just go, oh, it's just literally the power of fear and pain and violence, which is not something as a civilised society we have decided we want to respect anymore. Mm. You know, thank goodness, thank goodness that actually we don't any longer consider it part of civilised dialogue to punch someone hard in the face. Mm. So then maybe we can stop considering it a reason to think that a man is more um, of a natural leader because he could punch somebody harder in the face. And I mean, there are so many other things, I think, that just come from recognising this. So uh, the current beauty standard, which says that women should be as small as possible and men should be as muscly as possible... It's hard to know what that is for, that beauty standard, except to increase proportionately the number of, like, pairs of men and women where the man could throw the woman across the room. Mm. Like, that's, you know, it's hard to understand what else that would be for. Um, So I think that very obvious foundational thing, the thing that we don't talk about, that men are just physically stronger and women are more frightened all the time. Like, women are frightened all the time. And, oh, it's, it was lovely writing the start of that book where suddenly just women don't have to be frightened all the time. I've got a line in there that's something like it was high summer inside her all the time. That just feeling of tremendous ease where you go, oh, nothing can happen to me. I could walk down a dark street naked and nothing, no one could touch me. Yeah. That is a different kind of way of understanding yourself. I don't write comforting books. No, it should be difficult. Yeah. Because it is a difficult thing to have to face up to. Yeah. And I think certainly men find it troubling, which is great. Um, I've sometimes had men sort of, after they've read it, look at me in a kind of wide-eyed, terrified way going, why would you write these horrible things? I'm just like, have you not seen the world? I didn't make any of this shit up. You know, there's a bit in the power where there's just like a little throwaway thing where I say there's procedures invented curbing where um, uh, men at puberty have the some nerves in their penis burned out so that they can only get an erection if a woman gives them an electrical little shock up the bum. And uh, many men who have had it done will never be able to ejaculate without pain. And there was a really 
there's a really good review, Saturday Review did a wonderful like discussion of it. And one of the men on it said, oh, he got to that point and he went, oh, come on. And then he thought, like he said this in, in the review, he said, and then he thought, oh, that's FGM. And then he understood. And I think it feels so different to hear about it happening to people who are not like you and go, oh, dear. Uh, versus hearing about it exactly being enacted on a body like your body. And I think this, I think the sexual violence and the power is what is one of the kind of the things that because we're so used to seeing it as that it's a woman as the victim and and even more often that it, at least it's a man who's carrying it mm. out to a man or a woman. But the, this kind of like inversion of what that physical power meant. I mean, obviously in the in the having the skein and having the electric shocks, but then how they would talk to the man and taunt him in the ways mm. that it was just, oh. It was... That was one of my tests. It was one of my tests for myself in the book that I thought, if I get this right, by the end of the book, I will be able to have a scene of a woman raping a man um, and you'll believe it. Yeah. You won't find it funny, you know? You won't find it silly. You won't go, oh, come on, he must have wanted it. There was nothing funny about it. <laughs> It was horrible. Yes, yes, it's horrible. As And it was horrible to write, by the way. It's not my fave at no, all. No, no, I can imagine. Um, but I thought, okay, I wrote it, I felt convinced myself. And then I thought, all right, this is this is what people mean when they say rape is not about sex, it's about power. That is not about, you know, that scene is not a scene in which anyone's getting off. Like they're getting off in a different way. Mm. Like like the woman who does it is getting off on, you know, her mates cheering her on and like the whole feeling of being able to do what she likes and a kind of humiliating somebody and um hurting someone and all of those feelings. It's not it's not about sex. So, you know, when people say, Well, rape is not about sex, it's about power, like that's what that is about, is to say, Okay, if you just want sex, if you're a man and you just want to have some sex like, there's Tinder, and there's also, you know, you can go and pay somebody for that. That is a trade that has existed forever. If what you really want actually is to hurt someone and to force your will on them, whether they like it or not, that is a different set of desires than the sexual desire. Yeah. We live in a world full of stories, right? The world that we inhabit is mostly imaginary. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but it's like... So much of the stuff that we think we know about the world, we don't know because we've observed it. We know because we've heard people tell us stories about it. So we've listened to the news. We've read history books. You know, we've heard other people's accounts. I've never been to New Zealand. How do I know it's there? Because I've heard about it. That That's just sort of preamble. So <laughs> I came up with a sort of idea. I came up with an idea that amused me for a frame to put on uh, the novel which is partly because I think I think so much of what we think about gender is just about the stories that we tell ourselves about gender rather than about our own experience of our own feelings about our gender or, or knowledge of what we are, what our capacities are. So um and, and the story the stories that we tell are in many ways just utterly vile, you know, just and I think harmful in both directions, actually. Uh, I, I think I think the forcing of a particular kind of emotionless masculinity onto men is is it's a horror. It's it's a it's a torture. 
So the frame on the novel is that there are two writers, uh, Naomi and Neil. Uh, Neil has written this book, The Power, which is in his, he describes it as a historical novel. And uh, Naomi is responding to it. Neil is sending his book to Naomi to ask for her thoughts on it. He obviously has a lot of respect for her. Uh, she's very excited to read his book. One of the things that I wanted to get at in there is... Obviously, those are two versions of me. There's There's this Naomi and there's this Neil and... They are in some ways the same person, just, you know, their positions are different gender-wise. Um, and so one of the things that that is about is talking about how different one is because of one's position and not because of one's inner character. So so one of the things Neil says at the start is that um, he's written four historical books and nobody has really understood what he's getting at and so he's decided to do a novel which might be more palatable to the general reader uh, good idea neil i say um and so this book is it's explicitly within the text it's a piece of it's it's a polemic almost it's a it's a book that has a case to argue one of the things he talks about is how people do not want to be told a different story to the story that they have already imbibed. Mm. A lot of people really don't want to know the actual truth based on the best historical evidence. During the writing of the book, I had a was very, very lucky. I had a conversation with Ursula Le Guin. I did a, an interview with her for Radio 4, and we ended up having a lovely conversation of about 90 minutes. Um, I mean, just such a privilege. And one of the things that I asked her about that I think didn't make it into the programme was I said to her, what do you think your legacy will be? And she said, oh, she said, well, I've noticed that women's writing is more quickly forgotten than men's writing. And this, oh, God, a hammer blow, right? It's just like, this is the whole problem. When we try to think of great writers or brilliant scientists or um, amazing speakers or fantastic leaders our brains are so ingrained in this same story that we just think of men yeah. in that context. We do, our brains just automatically do it. Um, it's not that we're on purpose trying to be sexist or on purpose trying to go, well, I hate history. It's just that our brains have a tremendous difficulty of actually you know, holding on to the complexity of historical truth rather than the simplicity of a good story. Stories are how... They somehow match the folds of our brains, you know, that is they're an easy and good way to remember and understand the world. So that is sort of about authors and, and readers, you know, in some way, authors supposedly have the power, but it's for readers to decide whether they believe you or not. And if your story is unpalatable to a reader, that's the end of that. You know, they don't remember it, they don't pass it on. It feels like we've covered um, hardly any of a very, very broad topic. Um, but what I've been thinking in an attempt at a summation is probably that producers and creators of 
whether it's creative content or fiction or art, have um, an inherent power to produce material which is um, which tells a certain story, whether that's a diverse story or an inclusive story, um, something which is representative of a certain section of people or something which tells an important point. But we also have power as consumers to consume those stories in whichever we, way we see fit. Um, I'm reminded of um, something that Pandora Blake said in our interview, which was published in our um, episode on sex, about and the intent of a storyteller doesn't really matter once that piece is created and once once it's finalised. She was speaking about it in reference to whether a piece of, of porn or sexually explicit content can be designed to arouse somebody and it doesn't matter whether you watch that and are aroused or you watch it and you laugh or giggle or are upset or feel quite nostalgic even. I don't know, you can't, you can't, uh, well, no matter how much power a creator has, you don't have enough power to have complete say over somebody's response. It's a lot like discussions about jokes and particularly in stand-up comedy, but also in anything. It, it, people, there are things you can't joke about, people say, which isn't true. The, the question is, who is the target of the joke? And and where is the joke directed? And that's a question of where you put your lens. But then again, as you say, the the power is in the person who laughs at the joke. Is are they laughing at the tar- the target of the oppression, or are they laughing at the perpetrator? And that's hard to that's hard to police. But that's the responsibility of the storyteller, isn't it? It's about who is seen as being the admirable figure or the celebrated figure in the fiction or in the joke and who's seen as the sort of judged person or the uh, the, the villain of the piece in, uh, in a particular story. And it ties in with what you were saying earlier about how you curate your own, you curate your own little library of, of content. You have your own opinions on whether you find something which is designed to be horrific, whether you find it endearing. If somebody wants to highlight a particular character in something as being either heroic or underdog or whatever, you can react to them in a completely different way. For some reason, I'm thinking about Mary Bennett and I don't entirely know why, but I feel like she's portrayed as being somebody really pedantic and pious and um, not worthy of much attention or love. But um, she's somebody that I think of quite... Fondly, and 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 my reactions to 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 characters is unpoliceable. Yeah, I think that idea of the power of the storyteller and that power used to shed light on power as well is really interesting when you think about it in terms of the fact that that power as well has to fall away, has to be given to the consumer, as you said. It makes the piece of art kind of live on its own yeah it the sense of it sort of like fizzing along in its own right and if you've invested it with what power you have in a way that expresses what you wanted to say whatever that thing is but then it is the power is up to the person interpreting it and the century it's being interpreted in and that kind of thing it's an interesting thing that i mean it's just such a multi-layered dynamic that depiction of power and the power of the creator and then the power of the interpreter as well. I think it comes down to individuals, doesn't it? It's, it's power is a very individual thing and it sits entirely with yourself when you go about your everyday, whatever you're doing. It's something that resonates 
with um, the earlier incredibly depressing topic that we kicked off the, uh, the episode with talking about sexual assault, is people need to realise their own power and action it. And that doesn't matter whether you are um, a victim of a crime, um, a perpetrator of a crime, and you have more, you think you have more power than you do, or whether you're a creator of a story which needs to hit a certain mark, or a consumer of a piece of fiction which you want to resonate with you in a particular way. As Jenny said, the topic of power begs many dozens of episodes. Throughout all the discussions and the work showcased in this episode, ideas about how power is given, used and relinquished hint at the vastness of what we all need to confront. Those of us with any modicum of power must face two important questions. How to employ it responsibly and how best to share it. And we'll leave you hanging on that very difficult question. That's all from us this month and... That's also all for our final episode of 2017. We'll be back with our next full episode in early 2018, but don't worry. We'll be releasing some wintry bonus material over the next month, so do stay tuned to our podcast feed. Meanwhile, we always appreciate nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcatcher, and please do keep getting in touch. If you have feedback or you'd just like to say hello, email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Story Etc. Pod. And as ever, if you're a writer with a short play, story or monologue which you think we might like to feature in the show, or you're an actor who'd like to perform in one, please do contact us. To those of you based in London, Tom Crowley is directing his modernised adaptation of Great Expectations, soon to have its world premiere at the Old Red Lion Theatre from the 12th of December to the 6th of January. The cast features Mariam Grace, as heard performing in this episode, and the sound and music are being composed by our own Odin Ornhill Marson. We'd love to see you there. Thanks so much for listening to our thoughts, our conversations and our stories in this, our first year of broadcasting. While you're waiting for us to come back, why not think up some stories of your own? The world always needs more. Story Etc. Power was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill marson who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Mike Carey, Katie Danbury and Naomi Alderman. Special thanks to Andy Goddard at the Coach House Studio. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening. <laughs>